There's really no easy way to approach the subject that we're going to speak on today. When we begin a series on doctrine, uh, some things are easier than other things to address. It's always easy to address the, the doctrine of heaven. You know, everybody loves heaven. It's always easy to do, you know, address the doctrine of grace. Everybody wants a break in their life. Amen? Uh, I mean, all those kind of things are good, but this one is always just like, wow, God, why did you put that in there? Why has it got to be like this? And I think the human side of us wants to ask really hard questions, whether we ask them just to ourselves, or we ask them to God or we ask them to someone else. We want to know some things. I was having a dialogue with someone on the subject of, of God. Whether there is a God or isn't a God, what kind of God is it? And I, they made a statement. They said this. They said, well, I'm offended by a God who would create hell. And I asked this question. Why aren't you offended by the idea of a forgiving God? Well, that makes sense. God ought to do that kind of stuff. And it began this dialogue on justice. I said, well, who should God forgive? Should God forgive people who are really, really bad or just a little bit bad? Where's the line? And, and if we become the arbitrator of the line, if we become the person who says, well, I think this much, this kind of level of people, can, it's okay to be forgiven, and this kind, I'm not really sure about forgiving them. And while you might say you forgive everybody, there's some people, quite honestly, that you might forgive because it sounds spiritual and Christian, but you don't want them living next door. Am I right? I mean, there are people that have created heinous crimes in our world, and you look and you go, well, I'm sure somewhere in the whole world of God this thing can work, but I don't want them next door. And that is the tension that we find ourselves within in, in trying to understand how do, we, how do we approach this matter of what is just and what is justice and who's going to determine just and justice in our world. Here's some of the questions I get periodically uh, about the afterlife. Uh, what happens when I die? And I always say to people, well, it really depends on who you know. Right? I mean, it, it, it's all about who you know. Because when I die, my worldview, the way that I look at life is that I have put my faith in Jesus Christ, and that faith in Jesus Christ has allowed me to have this confidence and this hope based on faith that I will stand before God, that I will be with Jesus, that I will have an eternity with Him. A few weeks ago, I made reference to someone I was talking to who really thought God was not very fair, and I said, which God? And it took them a little off center because they didn't really expect that question because is this the God of the Muslims, Allah, the moon god of Saudi Arabia? Or is this the God of the Bible? Is this the God of the New Testament, the God of the old and new, or just the old? Is this the Hindu gods? What God? Another question is, is there really a place called hell? I don't have any working knowledge of it. I've never been there. Don't want to go there. Don't want anybody to go there in life. But I have, to, I have to fall back and I have to say, what did Jesus believe? 
Because if I want to accept the, the things that he said about heaven and about forgiveness and the Sermon on the Mount and all that stuff, then his credibility is on the line. Did he believe in it? Did he teach it? What was his understanding of it? Because quite honestly, my level of intelligence and understanding is pretty low. I have to fall back to God. What did God say? Another question is, what about purgatory? Is there a purgatory? And where did that idea come from? Many of you come out of a background that taught that there was a purgatory or is a purgatory. And actually, if you really study it, it probably predates uh, New Testament times altogether. You probably can take it back to Plato and his understanding of how justice is done and how purification has to happen before there's any good that can happen in the eternal life. And then you fast forward and, and the church kind of really didn't really embrace it. The Catholic Church really didn't embrace it till really about 1100. So it was something that didn't, it does not find its origin in the Bible. It finds its origin in some of the, what's called the interbiblical writings of 2 Maccabees and some of those kind of books that you probably haven't read lately. And also out of an understanding of, well, that would be fair. And sometimes what we do is we move into this realm of speculative, an opinion, conjecture, deduction. We take all these things we thought and we think, this is what I believe. And we create this kind of religious model of faith or non-faith. And it's really a smorgasbord of just what everybody else has thought. We just kind of put it together because it felt good, like, a, like an old pair of jeans. You go, that feels good to me. Another one is, is reincarnation in the Bible? It is not. The Bible doesn't speak about reincarnation, it speaks about resurrection. This idea of the immortality of the soul, that the soul is just uh, always there and it just always kind of recycles itself, uh, recycles itself in, in, in you and, and on and on and on. I love that Dosecki's beer commercial. Sorry for those who don't drink beer. I'm not a beer fan either, so don't worry. But I love the commercial where, you know, he's the most interesting man in the world. And the most recent one that came out was, in a former life, he was himself. You know, and you kind of got to look at it and realize that this idea of spirituality and religion and faith, it's woven into the fabric of every single part of our society. It's woven into us because God created us with a capacity to believe there is a God and to know the true God. And even those who don't believe in God, they spend most of their time trying to convince somebody there is not one. And if there is not one, just leave the subject alone and go on with your life. And they would say to Christians, well, if there is one, why are you so, because we believe there is one. Well, there's a story in the Bible, and we're going to read it in its, in its entirety, but I want to kind of set it up this way. There's a story of a rich man and Lazarus. It's an old story about this, this man, Lazarus, who's really poor and just kind of neglected in life. And then there's this rich man, and, and all really Lazarus wants is just a few crumbs that would fall from his table so he could nourish himself. And it says, the Bible says he's covered in sores, and, and he's just in a deplorable situation altogether. And before we read that, I want to ask you this question because it said he sat at the gate of the rich man. I want to ask this question. Who's sitting at your gate? 
that you're neglecting, that you're not loving, that you're not ministering to. You see, there are people at our gate who do not feel valuable in life. And we have a responsibility to help them to feel valuable. There are people in our life like Lazarus with open wounds. They don't know how to get healing. They don't know how to find that bomb that's going to kind of bring them back together and, and minister to them. They don't know what to do. You may not be the person that can fix it, but you can be the person that can listen and try to facilitate that help. There are people that are in your way. You see, that every day that rich man, when he left his house, he had to step over or step around Lazarus. Who's in your way? You go, I wish they weren't in my way. Why do they slow me down? There are people that want your help. He was begging every day. Every day the rich man walked by and neglected to do anything for this poor man. And he was all alone. I don't know if somebody brought him there and dropped him off, but he seemed to not be able to really move forward in life. Now with that set up, I want you to listen now in in the book of Luke chapter 16 to the story that Jesus tells to illustrate this idea, this separation idea between righteous and unrighteous between heaven and between hell. It says there was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and he fared scumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus. He was full of sores. Just stop for a moment and let let the Spirit of God set that frame in your head. Really rich guy, everything's going well. Really poor guy, everybody hates and everybody neglects. He says he was desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torments in in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and he saw Abraham far off and Lazarus in his bosom. And then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he might help dip the finger in water and cool my tongue for I am tormented in this flame. Let me just stop there for a moment and call your attention to something. He still saw Lazarus as a servant. He can go do it. The other thing that's interesting is he never asked to be out of his torment. He's not content in it, but he doesn't ask to be out of there. It goes on to say, but Abraham said, son, remember your good things and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted and you are tormented. And besides all this between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed and there is the principle of separation. It's what C.S. Lewis calls the great divorce. And we'll give you some illustrations about that in a moment. And there's a great gulf fixed. And notice it's fixed. It's not, it's not a moving target. It is not, there's not a bridge. It's not going to change. It's like at death, that's it. That's why the Bible says that it is appointed to all men to die once and then the judgment. We don't die multiple times. We die once and then there's a judgment. 
so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor those from there to them can pass to us. I want to talk a little bit about the public opinion versus Jesus. Everybody has an opinion, right? And most of the times, we think they're right. Am I right? You got an opinion? It must be right, because it's my opinion. Well, people in Jesus' day were no different. They had an opinion, too. But here's Jesus that has speaks, and they even recognize it. They say, never have we heard a man who speaks with such authority. That was a thing that was overwhelming to them. He's not in doubt here. He's fully convinced about what he's saying. And so irrefutable is his argument based on the word of God and even logic that even the most skeptical people are stopped in their tracks and don't know how to respond to Jesus. Can I tell you that the authority that Jesus had, you have. You may not exercise it, but he says, all authority have I given unto you, Matthew 28, to go and preach this message of the gospel. He spoke with authority and he spoke with power. There was something about this Jesus that was a little bit unnerving because he is so confident, he is so right on, we can't refute his arguments of logic or scripture. What do we do with Jesus? And the only thing they could do with Jesus was to crucify him and to put him away and end the world of this troubler of the Jews. Well, let me ask a couple of questions. Can society be just without justice? I mean, we would say in our society, if we just take kind of basic principles of logic, if, if, if I don't have justice that operates in a world, how do I have, how, how can anyone be just? How can we have a moral code somehow that sets the, the tone for where, we're go, where we go in life and how we live and how we respond to one another? What is right and what is wrong? Who determines that? Society do that? Well, society's done a really poor job over, over its centuries. Adolf Hitler thought he could determine there was a whole race of people who were not people. The Jews are not people. Therefore, we can get rid of them, and society, either by the nod of their head or by the neglect of their voice, allowed that to happen. And we would say that's in, not just. It's not right. And indeed, it is not right. And society failed miserably, and society will fail miserably all through its history. There was a time when a Supreme Court justice of the United States said that slavery was okay. He was wrong. Why was he wrong? Well, it wasn't because they weren't, they weren't thoughtful. It wasn't because they didn't look at the whole situation. It was that they had a human bias and a presupposition that prevented them from ever really understanding the principle of the Word of God. That no man can be another man's slave. And that principle was given by God, not by man. Not by man. I was in a dialogue with a young man who got a full-ride scholarship in physics to Texas Christian University. And we were having that dialogue because somehow his parents were convinced that I could talk him into something because he was an atheist. And we began that dialogue, and as we began that dialogue, I said, you're at the wrong place. You're going to the wrong school. And he goes, what are you talking about? I said, you should go to TAU, Texas Atheist University. Dude, I'd hate to be you stuck with an atheist position and going to a Christian university. 
And we laughed, we built great friends, we built some bridges, and really his problem was not a God problem, it was a religion problem, it was a church problem, it was a Christian's problem. Most people don't really have, have a problem with the true God of the Bible, they have a problem with the way everybody puts it through their filter and makes God look different than he is. And we've maintained a friendship and a dialogue, and he's actually moved quite a few clicks in my direction. And by the way, I learn from him too. See, we have to be learners. We can't just be closed-minded people that are just, you know, not willing to listen and to learn and to care and to love people. I wanted to honor him. He had that view. Okay, why? Help me to understand it. Let's see where that came from. Maybe I can help. Maybe I can't, but I want to be there for you. Here's another one. Should justice be based on freedom or virtue? You see, justice says, well, I should be able to do what I want. Or should it be based on virtue? Doesn't virtue count for something? Goodness count for something? Would not God then, the ultimate just person, be best suited to determine what is, what is just and what is virtuous? And that leads us to this one. Who should determine what is just? You see, without some kind of a standard, without some kind of an absolute truth, you're left to a constantly shifting, moving kind of standard of what is right and what is wrong. And see, all of this is at the core of this principle of is there a hell and what, why is it there and who runs it and all that kind of stuff. Because you see, if you and I are the determiners of virtue and justice and truth, then of course hell should always be conformed to our idea of what it's like. Or if there's no need for one, then we have to determine where is the line of putting the guy you don't want to live next door to you next door to you. And who deals with that? It is complicated. I give you that. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 28. And by the way, Jesus spoke more about the subject of hell than he ever spoke on the subject of heaven. He said this, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. That's pretty straightforward. Doesn't leave a lot of wiggle room, does it? It's interesting that in Jesus' day, nobody questioned whether there was a hell. The whole question was, who's going? I believe in heaven, don't you? Amen? Amen. But if there's a bus out front that has heaven on it, I'm not getting on it today. I'm not ready today for that. But I believe in it. Billy Graham said this many years ago. I thought it was kind of interesting how he he put it. He said, if we had more hell in the pulpit, we would have less hell in the pew. You know what's good about hell, the subject? And several of you said this to me on the way in. Is it reminds me, it holds me accountable and says, you know, there are some things that are right and wrong in life. You know, some of the reasons that I, that I, I, I don't do some things is because fear. Fear. We were with our, our two little grandsons who are undoubtedly the most intelligent, <laughs> handsome, just good people. Grandchildren are better people than your own children. They're just better people. I don't know why they... 
and the intelligence skips a generation. He's so smart. I looked at my son. I said, I don't know what happened to you, son. Look at him. Look how smart he is. And my son just laughs, you know, and he said, which, which end of the generation did you skip? And I said, ooh, that's a tough one. But, you know, we're down in the water, and, and, and he's afraid to go out too deep, and then he runs back, and there's a certain level of, I want him afraid of that water when you're three years old. I want him to respect certain things. God does that with us. Let's look at our eternal soul. One of the things we know that we're created in the image of God, we value choice. Don't you love to choose things? You can walk out of here and you can choose to do whatever you want to do within certain limits, within certain capacities. We love that. God created you that way. He created you with the choice. And God said the choice is you can choose loving me and you can choose hating me and that's your choice because you're created in my image as a free moral agent who can choose. What do you want to choose? We also exercise reason. Some things make sense, some things don't make sense. If we do things that are bad for us and detrimental to our thinking, our ability to reason diminishes and we don't make sound logical decisions anymore. So when you think about the subject of God or what God has said, you always have to go back to, not can I prove it, I can't ultimately prove anything to anyone. Ultimately. Because everything is a faith presupposition. We consider ourselves to be invincible. The younger you are, the more this is true. You go, yeah, I'm just, uh, yeah, that's never going to happen to me. That won't happen to me. We're sitting at the water, and all of a sudden the waves are coming up, and I looked at my wife and I said, what if you saw a 100-foot tsunami coming right now? What would you do? She goes, thanks for ruining my entire day. But, you know, you kind of think, well, I can run. I can outrun the tsunami. You always think about, I'll head to high ground. You, you, because there's an invincibility because God put in you hope. How about this one? We ignore time as it relates to eternity. Time only becomes important to us because of what we have to do in life. But when it comes to eternity, we say, let me ignore time for a while because time is not valid on the subject of eternity because after all, I have a lot of living to do. Or I'm a pretty smart person and I think I can figure it out. And everybody in life kind of thinks they're smarter than everybody else deep down somewhere on some subject. Not all subjects, but yeah, maybe. But time is that thing that's elusive. It's a thing that we, we can't put our hand on because I don't know if I have five minutes or 50 years left in life. I just don't know. Jesus said it like this, enter by the narrow gate telling us immediately that it, it, it's not going to be the most popular gate. It's a narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. Well, why would people choose that? Because there is within every one of us a selfishness. There is within us a nature that wants to move in the direction of, of self-fulfillment, self-righteousness, and sin. So that way it leads to destruction, and there are many that go by it because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way. It's not easy to live the Christian life. It really isn't easy to live the Christian life, is it? I mean, because temptations come and you go, well, why not? Is that really harmful? Is that really bad for me? 
and other friends are doing it, why shouldn't I do that too? Narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few who find it. He tells us something that, in a kind of summary fashion that, that is a little unnerving. He says not everyone is going to be saved because it's a narrow road. He also tells us that more are going to be lost than are going to ever be found because the road that is wide and popular is broad. He tells us that no one will be saved after death, not given to man for a second shot at it. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Great Divorce, he, he paints this picture of a busload of people who are taking a tour from hell and they're going to go to the outskirts of heaven. And as they come to the outskirts of heaven, the, the man driving the bus urges them to leave behind their sins and all the things that have trapped them in hell. But they refuse. Their response is that they would rather have their freedom as they define it than to have salvation as God would define it. Their delusion is that, they, that if they glorified God, they would somehow lose power and freedom. And thus, Lewis calls that separation between man the great divorce. In fact, Lewis says of hell this, he said, the greatest monument to human freedom is hell. You see, a person who doesn't love God would be miserable in heaven as a person who loves God would be miserable in hell. Thus, the rich man's story, the rich man doesn't ask to get out. He just says it's not comfortable. You and one would think he would want to get out. The last chapter of your life, let's look at this for a moment. C.S. Lewis, again, I go back default to him. He's, uh, he's written so brilliantly on this subject. Um, if you don't know who he is, he was an Oxford professor of medieval literature and uh, uh, wrote quite prolifically on subjects that are difficult to deal with. But he said, the safest road to hell is the gradual one. The gentle slope, the soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. It's just little by little I allow my own thinking to drive me away from the presence of God. There is nothing greater than to be in the presence of God. In fact, just speaking those words, I am in the presence of God, changes the atmosphere. It changes the mood. It changes everything that happens. Imagine that somehow hell is outside of the presence of God to the extreme. Listen to what God says in 1 Timothy chapter 2. He says that God desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. That's the heart of God. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom. So he died in my place so I could have life. 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slack about his promise as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us. How many times I think back over my life before I became a believer, how many times I, I look back over my life and I think, uh, I'd say, oh yeah, to my friends, if there's a God, let him strike me dead right now. 
See? I just proved there's no God. What was I really doing? I don't know if deep in my heart I was saying things like that because I really wanted to know God, but I didn't know how to connect with Him. But this scripture says that, that God is not slack concerning His promise, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. So why is God patient with me? Because He loves me. Why is God patient with you? Why does God not wipe me out in some of my darkest moments when I just say, God, I don't get it. Where are you, God? Doesn't make sense, God. Why do you let that happen in this world, God? Because he's long-suffering toward me. Because he's merciful toward me. Why does God put up with us? Because he loves us. He loves us. But there does come a point at which we have to make a decision. In Deuteronomy chapter 30 and verse 19, it says, I call heaven and earth as a witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life. See, everyone has the right. You have the right to choose and to believe whatever you want. And we want to we respect you. We want to give you the dignity and the honor of that respect. But understand where we're coming from. We're coming from a position of Scripture where God says there is life and there is death. And that somehow, in that capacity that God has made us to reason and logic, it somehow makes sense. I've read for the last probably two weeks some different writings of some prolific kind of atheists. I just wanted to get perspective. The most interesting one was Freud that basically said, Hell makes sense. I may not believe in it, but it makes sense. If you have a world of just and injustice, that somehow along the line, that makes sense. On a, on a smaller scale, it makes sense when we, we live in a world that is a bit out of control. It makes sense to have a place where someone can go and we can put them away and help them to try to reform behavior. Whether they're effective or not, that's another subject. But there is a place called a penitentiary where you go and you say, you can't do that to society anymore. We're going to put you over here. And in extreme cases, we might even take your life. And somehow that makes sense to a lot of people. And on a global scale, on an eternal scale, it's what God does. It's what God does. But first he offers us life. And he said, let me show you how serious I am about loving you. And he died on a cross. The Bible says in Romans 5 that God demonstrates his great love for us in that while we are sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. That's me. He demonstrated it. You want to know how much I love you? Let me show you. And they put nails into his hands and into his feet. And, they said, and he said, this is how much I love you. I will die in your place to give you life. A few life applications. Here's one. Do you know that you have your eternal destiny in place? Is that in place? Do you know your eternal destiny? Where are you going if, God, God forbid, you would lose your life anytime soon? And another question is, has, has religion gotten in the way of your decision? Have you let somebody who just said they were a Christian and didn't act like it get in the way of a great decision? Have you let some kind of 
historical event in the past where you said, look how, the, how religion acts. Have you let that get in the way? Just because religion did something doesn't mean it's a Jesus thing. You've heard me say before, I hate religion. I do. I hate religion. I love Jesus, but I hate religion. What would you give in exchange for your soul? Would you give your freedom? You say, you know, if I can just have complete freedom to think what I want, do what I want, all of that, you can have my eternal soul. Complete freedom, by the way, is the freedom to say I don't have an eternal soul. I just, this is it. And when I live and I breathe and I die, that's it. That's your freedom. That's what you gave for your eternal soul. He said, that's my exchange. That's a great exchange. Okay, you have that. God honored your request. He gave you what you wanted. You wanted the ultimate freedom to deny God. You get it. But you also have the ultimate reward of knowing God and falling in love with Jesus and and having the hope of eternity. And that's what we want for every person. That is really what we want for every person. I'm going to ask you to, uh, to pray with me right now. And as I finish praying we're going to share today in in communion which is a reminder of the death of the lord jesus and his giving of life for us but let's pray as we prepare our hearts for that lord jesus as we prepare our hearts now for uh, this the sharing together of uh, this cup and this bread as reminders of your love Reminders, God, that, that you want us to love one another, to honor one another, and to honor you, God, with all of our mind, heart, soul, and strength. Father, we don't understand a love that would say, I will die for you when I don't know you or you're not in love with me. But you did that. And the demonstration of your love gets every one of us somewhere deep down. I can only imagine Jesus hanging on that cross while a crowd taunted him, hurling abuses at him, spit on him, lashed out at him. And then to hear those words that must have just vibrated across all of eternity, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And it is true, God. But apart from you, we don't know what we do. We act irresponsibly with the things of eternity. But God, you're calling us in to love. You're calling every person in here to love you because you love them first. So as this, this communion is really a time of love. It's a time of loving you and loving one another and being reminded of why we can celebrate life because of the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus. So as a church, God, as we take communion, we do so in love with you and in love with one another.